Well, please take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John, John 15. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been studying through uh, this great Gospel, and we uh, were looking at uh, John 15, verses 12 through 17 last Sunday, and uh, we ran across one of the clearest references to the doctrine of election in the entire Bible. It's verse 16, John 15, 16 where Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now for the sake of time, last week I just quickly touched on it, but I thought it would be helpful for us to take some time this morning just to explore this foundational truth uh, with more depth, since it's been such a controversial subject throughout church history. Um, It's been passionately debated and argued about for centuries and produced many opposing factions and spawned many movements and denominations. It's, it's confounded the greatest theological minds. It's confused countless Christians. Um, A.W. Pink, who's written a lot on the subject of election, said this, that it's one of the most hated doctrines of the Bible, the truth most loathed and reviled by the majority of those claiming to be believers. I think the doctrine of election is capable of stirring up all kinds of conflicting emotions from intense anger to fear, uh, worry, frustration, anxiety, to absolute wonder and joy and excitement. It elicits a myriad of responses. Some bitterly reject it while others adamantly defend it. Some deliberately avoid it while others creatively compromise it but few humbly and joyfully embrace it. One man said this about the doctrine of election. He said, quote, try to explain it and you may lose your mind, but try to explain it away and you may lose your soul. So let me start off by just making two simple statements just to lay the groundwork as we uh, tackle what is a very difficult subject And uh, the first thing I want to say is this, it's impossible to deny the doctrine of election, okay? That's number one. It's impossible to deny the doctrine of election. It's all throughout the scripture. You can't miss it. Now, you can reject it, avoid it, gloss over it, reinterpret it, but you can't deny it. It's, It's right here in black and white, and you have to deal with it. When I was um, being interviewed for the first church that, that I pastored, um, the search committee met with me and someone asked me in the search committee what I would do when I was preaching and I came to a verse about election. They wanted to know if I was going to skip over it or if I would stop and explain it. I think you know my answer to that question. But it's not unusual, I think, for pastors to skip over or make light of the doctrine of election and other doctrines that might cause controversy or stir up maybe questions in people's minds. Um, You may be wondering even now, why in the world would this dumb pastor, right, take a shot at this issue that is so controversial? Well, please know it's not because I like to be controversial. It's because I want to be faithful, faithful to teach the whole counsel of God. And you need to know right off the bat here that if you have a problem with the doctrine of election, you don't have a problem with me, you have a problem with God. You have a problem with the Bible. And so uh, I think we just need to set that out at the very beginning that, number one, it's impossible to deny the doctrine of election. But let me say something else. And I think you have to say this as well. Number two, it's impossible to decipher the doctrine of election. It's impossible to decipher the doctrine of election. Why? Because it involves great mystery and it creates serious problems in the minds of finite creatures like ourselves. I had somebody just tell me as he was leaving, he said, I'm going to go home and try to get rid of this headache you gave me this morning from first service. Listen, I haven't figured out the doctrine of election, and I'm under no delusion that one sermon on this will answer all your questions about it. In fact, it'll probably create more questions, um, but hopefully it will drive you back to the Word of God to be a good Berean and to test what you're going to hear today with the Scriptures to see if what I'm going to say to you today lines up, matches up with what God says in His Word. 
Listen, men far superior than me have wrestled unsuccessfully to fully understand this amazing truth and explain it to others. And my prayer is simply this, that God will help us gain an understanding of the doctrine of election that is as clear, as correct, as complete as humanly possible. And you will walk away with questions. And I hope that when we're through, while you may have questions, you'll see that election is not just some cold, analytical, theological argument, but is the most breathtaking, pride-crushing, confidence-building, sin-killing, soul-stirring, praise-inspiring, life-dominating reality that can totally transform your relationship with God. So first of all, let's look at the doctrine of election historically, because I think that's where you need to start, is where did this come from, um, at least in the way it's talked about in the church today. You have to go back uh, into the history of the church and, and look at the doctrine of election historically, and then after that we'll look at it biblically, okay? Well, the doctrine of election uh, in church history is usually associated with a man by the name of John Calvin, who was one of the key figures in the Protestant Reformation that, that occurred during the, the 15 and 1600s in Europe, we have him to thank, along with other reformers like Luther, Martin Luther and Zwingli and, and John Knox, for directing the church back to a right understanding of what the Bible teaches about salvation. And, and the hallmark of the Reformation was the sovereign grace of God in salvation. That is the essence of Reformed theology, or what is often called Calvinism. And I'll tell you why or how it became known as Calvinism in just a moment. But basically, Reformed theology, um, which mainly emphasizes the sovereign grace of God and salvation, arose in opposition to Roman Catholic theology. And the church in the 1500s, 1600s had veered away from the Word of God and was teaching um, a false gospel. Uh, they were adding works to the gospel that you not only had to believe in Jesus, but you also had to keep all of these sacraments and do all these things and jump through all these hoops in order to be saved. And Martin Luther, right, you remember him, he was a Catholic monk and he began to read the book of Romans and going, wait a minute, the Bible says that a, that a man is justified by faith alone, Period. And so they began to emphasize, again, the sovereignty of God and salvation. And so as the reformers began to study the scriptures, they, they decided to, to systemize what they believed about the gospel and about salvation. And they came up with these things called the five solas, the five solas of scripture. You may recognize these as uh, sola gracia, by grace alone, Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola Christus, by, or in Christ alone. Uh, sola scriptura, uh, by the word of God alone, or uh, through the word of God alone. And then sola deo gloria, for God's glory alone. And that was just their way of summarizing what the Bible taught about the gospel and about salvation, the, the five solas. Well, uh, there were those living in that same era who, who disagreed with the reformers, uh, and, and they reacted to this Reformed theology, uh, and, and they were basically uh, known as the Arminians. Um, and, and Calvinism was developed to counteract Arminian theology. And so you have Reformed theology that grows up to counteract Roman Catholic theology. Then you've got Arminian theology that's a reaction to Reformed theology. And then you've got Calvinistic theology that's a reaction to Arminian theology. And, and so Calvinism as, is often known as the five points of Calvin or the tulip, um, just an acrostic that stands for uh, the five points, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement or particular redemption, however you want to call it. Um, then you've got irresistible grace and then you've got the perseverance of the saints. And so you say, well, tell me a little bit more about these Arminians and where they came from and what their deal was. Well, Jacob Arminius was a Dutch seminary professor who, who didn't believe that man was totally depraved, that he wasn't all that bad. Um, they, they, he was just sick, maybe was a better way, uh, instead of dead, the Bible says we're dead in our trespasses. Well, Arminius said, hey, we're not really dead, we're just sick. Um, and so that, that he believed that man had the ability to respond to God based on their own free will. And so he taught that God's choice of those who were saved was based on his foreknowledge of who would choose him. 
And, and that's typically how uh, the doctrine of election is skirted or um, compromised. It's like, hey, yeah, I believe in the doctrine of election. And, and it was all based on God's foreknowledge uh, that, that he looked down through the corridors of time and he saw who would choose him. And then he chose those who were going to choose him. Well, what that means is that God's choice was conditioned on man's choice and that God is simply responding to man's initiative and so God is no longer sovereign in salvation, man is. And after Arminius died, his disciples organized his teachings into five articles of faith which they presented to the state of Holland where they lived um, in the form of a protest and they asked the leaders, the church leaders in Holland, to revise their, their confessions of faith, the Belgic Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, which, which clearly articulated the basic tenets of Reformed theology. And they said, we don't agree with those, and we think that you need to alter those to reflect more of what Jacob Arminius taught. And so the church leaders received these five articles of Arminius, um, the five points of our Arminianism, if you will, Interesting, before there was ever five points of Calvinism, there was five points of Arminianism. Uh, and so this prompted the Synod of Dort, which was a church council where all the, the, the church bigwigs got together, right? And they uh, examined Arminius' teaching in light of the scriptures, and they soundly rejected it as heresy. They said, this is unbiblical. But rather than just saying it's unbiblical, they wanted to provide some response. This was such a pivotal decision for them, uh, this church council, that these men who participated in this council, they, they needed to respond. They wanted to respond in some way. And so it just so happened that Calvin, uh, John Calvin, was the most astute theologian in that era who had written more extensively about the doctrine of, of salvation and defended it more effectively than anyone else in those days. And so at the Synod of Dort, Calvin's teaching on salvation were organized into five categories as the biblical response to the five points of Arminianism. And by the way, Calvin was dead at that time. He had already died. So Arminius was dead, and, and Calvin was dead, and here was their followers, right, uh, bringing their teaching together um, to confront one another. And so these five points or five categories of response to the five points of Arminianism became known as the five points of Calvinism, which in my opinion, um, to this day, I think remain the clearest explanation or expression of the doctrinal distinctives of the Reformation, or what we call, you may have heard them called the doctrines of grace. Now, unfortunately, some of you uh, your only exposure to Calvinism has been maybe some foaming at the mouth five point Calvinist, right? Who was very um, arrogantly and abrasively trying to convince you that your theology was all messed up and that, that you were a heretic and, and you needed to repent and you needed to you know, embrace these these doctrines as if your salvation depended on you believing the five points of Calvin. And maybe you've not been exposed to Calvinism other than to maybe assume what you've heard about Calvinism, worst case scenario, is, you know what, if that's true, that, that God chooses who is going to be saved, well then why do I need to, to, to evangelize? Why do I need to share the gospel? If God's already chose who's going to be saved, that person sitting next to me in the airplane, whether I witness to him or not, it's irrelevant because if he's been chosen by God, he's going to get saved anyway. That's what's called hyper-Calvinism. Um, that's not what we believe. That's not what John Calvin believed, nor was that his attitude. Um, he was a much kinder, gentler um, man of God. And regarding the doctrine of election, Calvin said this, no doctrine is more useful provided it be handled properly and soberly. He said there were two attitudes that should be avoided when it comes to the doctrine of election. He said you need to avoid, number one, excessive curiosity, and number two, excessive timidity. In other words, don't be overly curious about it, and don't be overly scared of it. 
He said this, let them remember that when they inquire into predestination, they are penetrating the sacred precincts of divine wisdom. If anyone with carefree assurance breaks into this place, he will not succeed in satisfying his curiosity and he will enter a labyrinth from which he can find no exit. So don't go running into the maze of election thinking, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to be the first person in 2,000 years of church history that's going to figure this all out. And I'm going to come out with the answers and I'm going to fix everybody, right? Ain't going to happen. Um, he said the second attitude that should be avoided is that of those who require every mention of predestination be buried. Hey, pastor, stop talking about election. I don't want to hear it. La, 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 right? He says that's, that's a, a, something to avoid. Indeed, they teach us to avoid any question of it. Whoever then heaps odium or hatred upon the doctrine of predestination only reproaches God as if God had unadvisedly let something slip into the Bible that was hurtful to the church. Listen, God would have never included references to the doctrine of election in his word if he had not intended that doctrine to be helpful to the church, not hurtful. At the same time, I don't think he ever expected us to fully understand it because he never fully explains it. He told us just enough to humble us and to convict us and to encourage us and and comfort us and to inspire us to worship and and serve him. Someone said it this way, that the doctrine of election is the price that we pay to have a God who's so worthy to be worshipped. So historically speaking, we're talking historically here, every Christian in every church is either Arminian or Calvinistic in their theology. And the majority of Christians and churches today are Arminian, which I find astounding in, in light of the fact that if you just go back to the Synod of Dort back in the 1600s, you'll see that that belief system was considered heretical, unbiblical. The minority of churches today and believers today are what you could call Calvinistic. We see that the Reformed tradition being um, manifest in like Presbyterian churches of America, PCA churches, Reformed Baptist churches, churches, Bible churches, a lot of Bible churches like Lakeside will, will be in the Reformed tradition. So now, for those of you that are more familiar with Reformation theology, uh, you need to know that we don't hold to some of the traditional Reformed distinctives like the regulative principle. In other words, if it's, if it's not in the Bible, we don't do it. There's lots of things that we feel freedom to do, like have a Sunday school program, have a youth ministry, have instruments on a stage, um, things like that. Um, uh, we, we have freedom within the scriptures to do those kind of things. We also don't believe in covenant theology, which is basically that, that, that the church is Israel. The church replaced Israel, and there's no future for Israel, and now it's all the church. Um, we don't baptize babies. We don't we're not amillennial in our, in our eschatology. These are other some, some distinctives of, of Reformed theology. But in my opinion, I don't think a church or an individual has to adhere to those beliefs in order to call themselves Reformed. To be Reformed, I think in its most basic sense, means to affirm the biblical doctrines relating to salvation that, are, that we're rediscovering during the days of the Reformation. So essentially, we are a Reformed church and unashamedly Calvinistic in our beliefs. We believe that God sovereignly saves sinners. We don't save ourselves, right? God saved us. We didn't save ourselves. Um, that being said, when someone asks me about our church, I don't immediately say, oh, yeah, we're a Reformed church or, or uh, you know, we're a Calvinistic church. I don't say that. I simply say we're an independent, non-denominational Bible church. Capital B I B L E, right? Because I don't want people's first thought about our church to be, well, they hold to the teaching of John Calvin. I want them to think they hold to the teaching of the Bible. Because we're all about people coming to know Jesus Christ, not John Calvin. <laughs> you don't need to accept Calvin into your heart, right, around here to be a Christian. It's about Jesus, right? And, and yet, it, I think it's imperative that we do understand that we have a historical perspective on our faith and to know that our church stands in the rich theological tradition of the Reformation. And we're not ashamed to say that. So that's looking historically at the doctrine of election. Now let's look at what really matters, and that is what the Bible says. Let's, let's look at the doctrine of election exegetically and, and draw out the meaning, right, 
uh, or a definition of election uh, from the pages of Scripture. Now, let me, uh, we're going to look at a bunch of verses here in just a moment, but before we do that, let me give you a definition, okay, of the doctrine of election that I believe is faithful to what the Scripture teaches uh, regarding this doctrine, okay? Listen carefully. Try to get your mind around it as best as possible. Hopefully you grabbed a sheet on the way in. I've got it written out there uh, so you don't have to try to memorize it. But this is a definition, I think, a biblical definition of election. Before the world began, God chose to save some people out of the mass of depraved, damned humanity to enjoy eternal life in heaven and passed over the rest and allowed them to suffer the just consequences of their sin and disbelief in eternal torment and hell. His choice of those who would be saved was not determined by or conditioned upon any foreseen act or response of those selected, but based solely on his own sovereign purpose for his own glorious praise. I think that definition, again, is based on the many references to election that are all over the place in the Bible. So let's begin. And if you can um, keep up, great. If not, just maybe write some of these references down. I've already listed them all uh, on that uh, note sheet that I provided. But uh, I think the place to begin when you consider the doctrine of election from a biblical perspective is the nation of Israel. I think all of us uh, are familiar with the fact that the nation of Israel uh, is called God's what? chosen people. And I personally have never met anybody in my years in Bible college, seminary, going to church most of my life, uh, you know, uh, going to camps and conferences, retreats. I have not heard anybody ever protest that that's unfair, that God chose the nation of Israel out of all the other nations of the world. That's just not fair. That's just not right. I can't accept that. But we just naturally accept that the Jews are God's chosen people. Because that's what the Old Testament teaches. So why would we have such a difficult time making that transfer, right, that jump to the New Testament when it also says that we are God's chosen people? Well, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples but because the Lord loved you and kept an oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. In other words God chose Israel because he wanted to choose Israel. There, there was nothing that set Israel apart in his mind, um, that, that drew his heart to them. Uh, he simply set his love on them, even though they were the smallest nation, right, in the world. Notice uh, Isaiah 41, verses 8 and 9. Again, just a, a couple of references here in the prophets about God's election of the nation of Israel, Isaiah 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts, I said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Isaiah 43, verse 20. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. By the way, we are the people, uh, we're included in that. We're, We're people that God formed for himself that we might declare his praise. That's why we're here today singing these songs, right? Spending time together worshiping the Lord. Now, let's make the leap to the New Testament and and just see how this this doctrine of election just explodes on the pages of the New Testament and, and none other than Jesus Christ himself talking about it in Matthew chapter 24, verse 22. Matthew chapter 24, verse 22, Jesus was talking about the end times and uh, all that was going to take place. And he says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the who? The elect, those days will be cut short. Notice verse 24. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the who? The elect. Notice verse 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Notice Luke chapter 18, verse 7. Luke 18, verse 7. Hear what the righteous judge, unrighteous judge said, Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? And then, of course, you have John 15, 16, right? We saw it last week. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And then notice in the book of Acts, interesting how Luke records the conversion of some Gentiles. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, he says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And then, of course, we go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Now people say, well, look, see, I can can handle the doctrine of predestination, election. By the way, those are synonymous terms, predestination, election, same thing. But but notice it says, for those whom he foreknew, see, he he knew that they were going to choose, and so he predestined them. Well, that word foreknow does not mean to foresee, it means to forelove. The word know Right When it says in the Old Testament that, that Adam knew Eve, it was talking about their physical relationship, talking about an intimate relationship. It was, it was talking about setting uh, love and affection on someone ahead of time. And so it's saying for those whom God set his affection on, set his love upon ahead of time, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Hey, who is doing all the work in that, in that uh, salvation experience there? Is it you? Is it me? Or is it God? He's doing it all. He gets all the glory. And notice in that same context, verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, and then we come to Romans 9, and I almost save this for the end because it's really kind of the, 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 the closing case, the ultimate argument, if you will, for the doctrine of election in the pages of Scripture. But as we're just kind of going sequentially through the New Testament, we'll hit it now. Romans chapter 9 um, here, uh, again, Paul was um, talking about what's up with Israel and, okay, why aren't they kind of on the center stage anymore and where do the Gentiles fit in and along with the Jews? And so Romans 9, 10, and 11, he's, he's talking about how um, God chose the nation of Israel uh, and he laid them aside for a season and then he's bringing in the church, uh, the, 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 the Gentiles, into his plan of salvation. But just listen to the language he uses here. Uh, starting in verse 10, this is Romans 9, 10. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Do you notice how Paul is really trying to emphasize the fact that, that, that God's decision to love Jacob and to hate Esau um, was not based on anything that those twins did? They hadn't been born yet. They hadn't done anything good or bad. But it was ultimately not because of the works, but because of his purpose according to his choice. And so Paul is making the case for this sovereign, unconditional election, this election, this choice of Jacob that's not conditioned on anything other than his own purpose and his own praise. And Paul anticipates the reaction that will naturally come when he said that. And his next verse, verse 14, he says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God is there. May it never be. In other words, when we read those verses 10 through 13 and we go, wait a minute, that's not fair. That's not fair. 
And so Paul anticipates that. So what, are you going to say then that there's injustice with God? That God's not fair? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. Your salvation is not based on your free will, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he has desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You're like, wait a minute, what did that just say? He has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And of course, that's a reference to Pharaoh, right? And you read the story of Pharaoh, and, and, and at one point it's saying that Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord, but then another verse it says that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You're like, what, who was hardening whose heart there? And yeah, it was both dynamics were, were happening. And again, Paul's anticipating, wait a minute, I know what you're going to think. I know how you're going to respond. And so notice what he says in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? I mean, how can God hold Pharaoh accountable for his hard heart when it was God who was hardening his heart? I mean, who can resist his will? And again, these are, if you ever question whether Paul was, was, was teaching here God's sovereign election, just the, the questions that he anticipates proves that he knows people are going to have a hard time with this. They're going to protest that this doesn't sound fair, it doesn't make sense, it, it, you know. Um, and he says, verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, again, we could spend weeks in this text, but we don't have time. So let's just buzz off to the epistles here um, and Paul's epistles specifically. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, just as God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, I love what Paul said to the Thessalonians. He said, uh, knowing, brethren, beloved by God is choice of you. In other words, I know that you're God's elect. Why? Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, it says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it, eternal glory. Titus 1.1, Titus, or Paul writes this. He said, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. 1 Peter chapter 1, very familiar, uh, similar statement here. 1 Peter 1, verse 1, to those who reside as aliens uh, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then even in 1 Peter 2.9, we see the Old Testament passage that we began with um, applied to the church. 1 Peter 2.9, but we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And then finally in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, 
Listen to what Peter says. He says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. So it's obvious, as you just read through the scriptures, that God wanted us to understand that he saves sinners, and sinners don't save themselves. Salvation is not us reaching up to God, but God reaching down to us. It's not us choosing God, but God choosing us. Now, everybody take a big, deep breath here, okay? Because it's totally normal, it's totally natural for us when we think about our salvation, when we talk about our salvation, to do it from our perspective. In other words, when you became a Christian, you made a choice to repent of your sin, to place your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. It was maybe as in response to an invitation at some service or at a camp or maybe through the witness of a personal friend or as a result of some major trial or crisis in your life. And we all have a different personal testimony of how and when we decided to follow Christ. And from a human standpoint, that's how you became a Christian, from a human standpoint. That you repented, you believed, you chose, you decided. That's from a human perspective. But what we're talking about this morning is salvation from God's perspective. That the only reason why we chose to follow Christ, that we decided to follow Christ, because he first chose us. And if God hadn't chosen us, none of us would would have ever gotten saved. Now why is that so hard for us to... (laughs) admit. Well, I think we don't like the sound of it. It sounds like we didn't do anything. Exactly. And A.W. Pink, again, who's written much on the doctrine of election, says that we are merit mongers who always want to take credit for everything, but our salvation is one thing we can't take credit for, and that's exactly how God designed it. For by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift From God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And I just think it's easier for us to think of salvation, right? Is God doing his part? We do our part. It's like two people running towards each other and we meet in the middle. But listen, the Bible paints a completely different picture. We are not running toward God. We're running away from God and he's chasing us. And sometimes he has to release the hounds of heaven to get us, right? That convicting message that you heard, that that camp you went to, that friend that that pulled you aside and and witnessed to you, that trial that you went through, was all part of God's plan to bring you to the place in your life where you would come to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. When God predetermined that, that you would be saved, he also determined how you would be saved and when you would be saved, and he providentially orchestrated the series of events by which you were saved. Now, I know right now your mind, like mine is, and like anybody's mind, I think naturally works, whenever you're um, wrestling with the doctrine of election, your mind just naturally races to logical conclusions, which invariably creates all sorts of questions and problems in our minds. Now, the most obvious problem with election that it seems is that it seems to contradict everything the Bible says about the opportunity all of us have to be saved and the responsibility all of us have uh, to repent and, and, and believe. And, and that is true, um, that the Bible says, whosoever will, right? John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes, Right? will not perish, Uh, Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the question in our mind is, well, how can God's invitation to receive eternal life be be legitimate? You know, this universal call for whoever wants to be saved, how can that be legitimate if he's already predestined what we would do and where we would go? Seems to be contradictory, right? And, And how about the verses about responsibility, to repent, to believe, to choose. Choose you this day whom you will serve, Joshua 24. Acts 23, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, how can God hold us accountable for choosing to follow him when it's ultimately God who chooses us, right, who does the choosing, And I think this is the main reason why so many Christians have a hard time accepting 
the fact that God is completely sovereign in the process of salvation because they, they think it's like we're robots, we're puppets. Um, and yet the ironic thing is that every Christian does believe that God is sovereign in salvation. I mean, just listen to how you pray. Not only do you thank God for your salvation, right, for saving you, you pray that God would save other people. That's proof that you believe that salvation is entirely of God. And if it was up to us, we, why are we thanking God for our salvation? Why are we begging him to bring our loved ones to Christ? Listen, whatever side you take on this issue, when in your heart you believe in the sovereignty of God. And we may argue on our feet about this issue, but when we're on our knees, we all agree. We all agree. J.I. Packer wrote a classic treatment on, on this age-old controversy between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's called um, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's a great resource that I would encourage you to, to get and read. Another, I forgot to mention this at the beginning, if this is hopefully stirring you up to want to go deeper in your study, um, not only should you read the Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, uh, this is a great resource we have in our a resource center is called The Five Points of Calvinism, defined, defended, a document, very biblically-based book. I think you would really, really enjoy it. And then if you don't like to read, hey, here's a movie, okay? Um, <laughs> seriously, this is like a documentary that was put together. It's about four hours long. Guys like R.C. Sproul, the late D. James Kennedy, um, but they do a bunch of interviews, and it's very in- informational, very instructional, um, and it's basically, it's called Amazing Grace, the History and Theology of Calvinism. This is the best thing that I've ever watched or listened to, um, just to simply explain um, the things that we're talking about. But listen to, listen to what, we got this in our resource center as, as well, so grab, grab a copy of that on your way out today. Um, and forget about the popcorn and the Cokes, okay? This is not a popcorn movie, okay? This is like a... Rewind that. Let's allow you to hear that again, right? Um, this is what Packer said. It is not true that some Christians believe in divine sovereignty while others hold an opposite view. What is true is that all Christians believe in divine sovereignty, but some are not aware that they do <laughs> and mistakenly imagine and insist they reject it. What causes this odd state of affairs, he says, the root cause is the same as most cases of error in the church, intruding rationalistic speculations, the passion for systematic consistency, and reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and to let God be wiser than men and the consequent subjecting of Scripture to the supposed demands of human logic. In other words, we want to make the Scriptures fit into our little pea brains. People see that the Bible teaches man's responsibilities for his actions. They do not see how this is consistent with the sovereign lordship of God over all things. They are not content to let the two truths live side by side as they do in the scriptures, but jump to the conclusion that in order to uphold the biblical truth of human responsibility, i.e. free will, they are bound to reject the equally biblical, equally true doctrine of divine sovereignty and to explain away the great number of texts that teach it. Listen, we've talked about this a lot, that God's sovereignty, man's responsibility... Two equally true truths. They're both taught in the Bible. The Bible says that God is in control of everything and at the same time that man is accountable for his actions and his choices. And so guess what? We have no choice but to believe both of those things and never teach one to the exclusion of the other but to keep them in perfect balance. You say that makes absolutely no sense and I would say you're absolutely right. It makes no sense to you. And it makes no sense to me. It's what Packer calls an antinomy, an apparent contradiction, an apparent contradiction between two equally true truths. He says there's good reasons for believing each of them. Each rests on clear and solid evidence, but is a mystery to us how they can be squared with one another. He says refuse to regard the apparent consistency as real. This is good. He says refuse to regard the apparent inconsistency as real, put down the semblance of contradiction to the deficiency of your own understanding, think of the true principles as not rival alternatives, but in some way they present to you at the time you don't grasp, they're complementary to each other, we may be sure that they find the reconciliation in the mind and counsel of God. And we may hope that in heaven we shall understand them ourselves, but meanwhile our wisdom is to maintain with equal emphasis both the apparently conflicting truths to hold them together in the relationship in which the Bible itself sets them and to recognize that there is a mystery which we cannot expect to solve in this world. 
It's the train tracks, right? You're standing on a train track and you've got two parallel tracks and they look like they're perfectly parallel to one another and then you look off into the horizon and what do they do? In your mind's eye, they come together, right? And, and that's, I think, the doctrine of, uh, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility right here. It's like, how would these things ever come together? But they do off in eternity. It'll make sense in heaven. The other analogy I like to use, it's been very helpful for me, and you've heard me say this before, I'm sure, that we're, here we are standing at the doorway of heaven, and there's a big old sign over the doorway of heaven that says, whosoever will may come. We're like, that, that includes me. And everyone else out here, well, come on, let's go. And we step through the door of heaven. We make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. And we immediately turn around. And there's another big old sign on the back of the door, on the inside of the door. And it says, chosen before the foundation of the earth. The point is that the doctrine of election is a family secret. It's something you find out after you're saved. As you begin to study the word of God and you go, wow, that's awesome. I remember when I repented and I went forward and I signed that card and I raised my hand and I prayed and I cried and I, and man, I, my life changed. And, but boy, you know what? I didn't realize that God had the hounds after me, man. And I see it now. Wow, that's amazing that God chose me before the foundation of the earth to be saved. And so if any of you are sitting here taking notes and going, man, I can't wait to get to work tomorrow or to class tomorrow and tell my un, unbelieving coworker or classmate about the doctrine of election and I'm just gonna let him have it. You're missing the whole point, okay? You don't bring up the doctrine of election in the gospel presentation. It's not something you say, now you need to understand that you may or, not be cho- may or may not be chosen, but I'm going to tell you the gospel and you can make a decision, you know, based on, you know. No. You just, you be responsible to preach the gospel. And you call for people to repent. You call for people to believe. Somebody said to Spurgeon one time, Spurgeon, if you are so convinced of the doctrine of election, then why don't you preach to just the elect? He says, well, if you'll kindly walk around and pull everybody's shirt up and show me the the E on their back, then I'll do that. Spurgeon's point was, I don't know who is the elect, and so I just preach the gospel, and I trust God that he's going to save those he's chosen to save. There's another... I think important point to make here when it comes to taking election to its logical conclusion, and that is the Bible never takes election to its logical conclusion. In other words, we shouldn't either. What the Bible simply says is that God chose those who would be saved. In other words, it it refers to election in the positive sense, not the negative sense. It's it's always about saving people, not sending people to hell. Nowhere does the Bible say that people go to hell because God didn't choose them. It says they go to hell because they chose not to believe. The Bible teaches that God chooses those who go to heaven, but men choose to go to hell. In other words, if you go to heaven when you die, God gets all the credit, all the glory, but if you end up in hell when you die, guess what? You take all the blame. You can't say, well, it's God's fault. He didn't choose me, so that's why I ended up here. It's a raw deal, right? Now, there are a few passages in Scripture, just a handful, that you might come across and go, ooh, man, that sounds like God predestined people for hell. 1 Peter 2.8, those who stumble over Christ, do so because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Jude 4, certain persons were long before and marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These verses do suggest that certain people were predestined for hell, but what is the emphasis of those passages, right? That the emphasis is the individual's disobedience and denial of Christ. That's the, that's the point, And the reason why I bring these verses up is because some kind of get wrapped around the axle with what's called double predestination or reprobation, which is the logical conclusion of election. If God chose those who would be saved, then that logically means that he chose those who would be damned. And it's like when we were little kids out at the recess, you know, and picking teams, and we were like, okay, ones and twos, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, and that there was this proactive right? Choosing, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. It was not like that. Election is proactive, whereas damnation is passive. 
It's passive. God is not equally responsible for causing people to not believe as he is for causing people to believe. God doesn't prevent anyone from coming to faith in him. He simply passes over them and allows them to keep right on doing what they're doing, which is rebelling against him, and allows them to keep right on going where they're going, and that's hell. God doesn't have to do anything to us for us to go to hell. He just leaves us alone, and that's where we're headed, right? We are by nature objects of God's wrath. We're all doomed in that direction. None of us would be saved unless God in his love and mercy intervenes and reaches out and plucks some of us from our plummet to hell, and he pardons us. That's the doctrine of election. That's predestination. Maybe an analogy would help here. Imagine if we were all death row inmates, and we're there waiting to die, and we deserve to die. We've committed crimes that are worthy of death, and, 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 and here comes the judge walking down the aisle there uh, in our jail cells, and he is not bound to let any of us go, but he chooses to demonstrate his mercy by pardoning some of us, while at the same time demonstrating his justice by just letting the rest go to the death chambers to to die for their crime, and the ones left in the jail cell on death row can't cry, well, that's not fair. Because they deserve to be there and they deserve to die. They're not innocent victims being condemned for, for a crime they didn't commit. They're getting what they deserve. They're getting justice. But the ones that that judge chooses to pardon will spend the rest of their lives praising and thanking the judge for not giving them what they deserved. They got mercy. In the same way, no one ever gets treated unjustly by God. God doesn't condemn anyone to hell who deserves to be saved. But he saves some who deserve to be condemned. And so there's no room for bitterness in the hearts of anyone, only grateful praise that God would be so merciful to us. Probably the most commonly asked question, I think, when it comes to this doctrine, this doctrine of election, is this. Why would a loving God allow anyone to go to hell? You may have not asked that question, but I guarantee you, you've heard an unbeliever ask that question. I've had to field that question a lot of times in witnessing to an unbeliever. Uh, I just can't believe in a God who would, who would allow anybody to go to hell. That's really the wrong question to ask. The right question to ask is, why would a just God allow anyone to go to heaven? That's the question that should really get you thinking, is why in the world would a just God let anyone go to heaven? And I think even better question you should be asking yourself is why did he choose to have mercy on me? And so if you're laying awake at night and you're trying to grapple with the doctrine of election and you're thinking, well, man, it just doesn't sound fair, it doesn't sound right, and what about my kids, and da-da-da-da-da, and you know, hey, the one thing that should keep you up at night is asking yourself, why me? Why me? Why me, God? Why did you choose me? And when you look at election from that perspective, all, all the confusion, all the frustration, all the fear fades into wonder and awe and praise. One man said this. He said, some think that election is all right for the theological classroom, but that it has no place at all in the pulpit. Such an attitude is unbiblical and is based on a lack of knowledge of what the Bible says about election. For election, instead of being a horrible doctrine, when understood biblically, is perhaps the finest, warmest, most joyous teaching in all the Bible. It will cause the Christian to praise and thank God for his goodness in saving him a good-for-nothing, hell-deserving sinner. Beloved, I will never forget my experience in theology too, in seminary. Showed up one day, had my syllabus out, my notebook, my Bible, taking notes, doing my thing. And in theology too is when you learn about the doctrine of salvation, soteriology as they call it. And I'll never forget Dr. Zemek, my favorite professor at the Master's Seminary, began to teach us the doctrine of election. And he went from Genesis to Revelation 
Verse after passage after verse after passage after verse after passage after verse after passage after verse after passage. And just revealing the scriptures, revealing the word of God and saying, guys, do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it here? 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 And he began to expound on what the doctrine of election actually was and what it meant and how it applied to us. And I remember I just put my pen down and I'm like bawling. I mean, it just, I was so overwhelmed with emotion for the first time that I was really, I think, taught what the Bible teaches about this. And I have never been the same ever since. Now, let me say one more thing, because unfortunately, whenever, my experience has been that whenever the doctrine of election is talked about, invariably somebody leaves with the worst confusion possible when it comes to the doctrine of election, and that is basically that they... um, conclude that they're not one of God's elect. They make that decision. I, I, I must not be one of God's elect. And, and how, how can I know if I'm one of God's elect? And ultimately, I guess if God's already decided it, it really doesn't matter whether I come to church anymore and it, whether I read my Bible, whether I go off and sin, because if I've been chosen by God, if that's true, then, then I can just go off and live my life any way I want, and, and God will get me when he wants me. And so they become very fatalistic in their thinking. And I actually know one person in particular who left our church uh, a number of years ago because they concluded in their mind they were not one of God's elect and there was no way they could ever figure it out. And, and so if, if God was going to do something in their life, they were just going to sit at home and wait for the zap. And, and it's just heartbreaking because I don't think God ever intended us to, again, take the doctrine of election to its logical conclusion. So let me just end with um, some encouragement And I love this perspective from C.H. Spurgeon, the guy who loved to preach the doctrines of grace. He loved Calvinism. He loved to preach on on, on election. But but listen to the balance here. This is so good. This is from his morning and evening, July 17th. Um, He was addressing 1 Thessalonians 1.4 that says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And this is what he wrote. He said, many persons want to know their election before they look to Christ, but they cannot learn it thus. It is only to be discovered by looking unto Jesus. If you desire to ascertain your own election after the following manner, shall you assure your heart before God? Do you feel yourself to be lost, a lost, guilty sinner? Go straightway to the cross of Christ and tell Jesus so, and tell him that you've read in the Bible, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Tell him that he has said, this is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Look to Jesus and believe on him, and you shall make proof of your election directly, for so surely as thou believest, Thou art elect. If you will give yourself wholly up to Christ and trust Him, then you are one of God's chosen ones. But if you stop and say, I want to know first whether I'm elect, you ask, you know not what. Go to Jesus, be never be you never so guilty, just as you are. Leave all curious inquiry about election alone. Go straight to Christ, hide in his wounds, and you shall know your election. The assurance of the Holy Spirit shall be given to you so that you will be able to say, I know whom I believed. I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him. Christ was at the everlasting council. He can tell you whether you were chosen or not. In other words, Jesus was way back there when they were predetermining who would be saved. But you cannot find it out in any other way. Go and put your trust in Jesus, and his answer will be, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. There will be no doubt about his having chosen you when you have chosen him. You see, that sounds like you just contradict everything you just said. No, that's a balanced perspective of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and salvation. And so I can stand here and honestly and genuinely tell you that you have a responsibility today to choose to follow Christ. You say, well, I can't do that unless he's chosen me. Well, listen, don't be excessively curious and go, well, uh, well how, am I elect or not? 
repent and believe in Christ. Choose to follow Christ. And that will be evidence, right, that you're one of God's elect. Let's pray. Father, we're baffled in many ways this morning at this mystery that's in your word that we have to grapple with in some way, shape, or form. Thank you for uh, just bringing it up in the Gospel of John so we could tackle it a bit here. And I'm sure that um, many of us are just still uh, trying to work through this in our minds and our hearts, but I pray that, um, Lord, you would just drive us all back to your word to be good Bereans um, and to really search this out for ourselves in your word and to to, to determine whether what we've heard today um, does line up with Scripture or not. And Lord, I do pray that if there's anyone here who has ever kind of got so confused and twisted in their mind about this doctrine of election and it's kept them from, from their responsibility to repent and believe and to choose to follow Christ, Lord, that today you would grant them repentance, you would grant them faith, you would give them the, the ability to choose today. And, and that they would not wait around for you to zap them, um, but they would just do what your, what your word commands them to do and know that somehow that fits all into the big picture of your sovereignty over salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.